President Trump's tweeting has been the subject of comedy, derision, and concern. It's become his method of giving information to the public. Trump announced his nomination of Christopher Wray as FBI director on Twitter. He tweeted threats that he had military solutions that were locked and loaded to use on North Korea. His tweets have often led members of his administration to respond to public concerns. Here's National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster on ABC's This Week. The purpose of capable, ready forces is to preserve peace and prevent war. George Washington said it. As much as Trump loves tweeting, Trump also loves to block Twitter users who have criticized or mocked him from his account. A First Amendment group has sued Trump, saying it's unconstitutional for him to block the Twitter users it represents. The Justice Department has responded that Trump has the legal right to block Twitter users on the privately run website. Our guests are Stephen Vladek, professor at the University of Texas Law School, and Saikrishna Prakash, professor at the University of Virginia School. Of law. Steve, the group of seven Twitter users range from a former police officer to a writer. Tell us the argument that the First Amendment group is making on their behalf. Sure. I mean, I think the basic gist of their claim, June, is that the president's Twitter account is part of his job responsibilities. It's a public forum. It's a place where he hands down official statements. It's a place where he uh, disseminates news. Um, And by preventing individual users from accessing that forum for what are, at least from the allegations, content-based reasons, the president is discriminating on the basis of the content of his users' speech against him um, and that he's blocking them basically because they have a viewpoint with which he disagrees. You know, in a normal context, if a government official were shutting out particular speakers based on their viewpoint, that would receive the highest scrutiny under the First Amendment and would typically be struck down by the courts. And Sai, we're still at a pretty early stage in this litigation, but give us an overview of what it looks like the, the Justice Department's defense of Donald Trump's going to be here. Well, the Justice Department uh, filed a letter with the court and basically made two two different claims. One was that um, this, you know, the website um, is not a public forum. The president had this Twitter account before he was president. Um, Presumably he'll have it after he's president. And he's using it to communicate with people, but it's not... um, it's not an official website or official Twitter handle for the government. So there's a separate White House Twitter feed for that. And then they're separately saying, and Stephen's very familiar with this, they're separately saying that you can't enjoin the president um, under some Supreme Court cases going back to uh, right after the Civil War. You can't enjoin the president in his official duties. And so they're saying, one, it's not a public forum, contrary to what the plaintiffs are saying, and two, even if it is, you can't tell the president to uh, stop blocking these people from his Twitter account. So, Steve, let's take those one at a time, because when the federal federal appeals court recently ruled against a key part of Trump's travel ban, his executive order, they lifted the injunction against the president. So how strong is the government's argument that an injunction is inappropriate against a president? 
Well, you know, June, I think it depends on the force of this 1867 precedent that Cy referred to. It's called Mississippi versus Johnson. Um, and this is an important, you know, challenge to military reconstruction by the state of Mississippi. Um, and, the pres- and the court basically ducked the merits. They actually spent about five years ducking the merits of that question um, by saying that at least in that case, you know, they couldn't issue an injunction directly against President Johnson. So a bunch of other states followed up and sued Secretary Stanton, um, and the court still ducked the matter on different grounds. I, I think, June, you know, most of what's happened in the last hundred years has overtaken that precedent. We have the Nixon case from 1974, where the Supreme Court upheld the power of the federal courts to issue a subpoena to the president. We have lots of lower court decisions that have issued some kind of compulsory relief against the president. You know, I think the courts are going to try to find a way to avoid this question if they can, but if push comes to shove, I suspect they'll say Mississippi versus Johnson doesn't stand for quite as broad a proposition as the Justice Department has invoked it for. Cy, uh, Steve, as he so often does, makes, makes a pretty strong case there. Do, do you agree with him? He may, he, I mean, honestly, Steve makes it sound pretty uh, makes it sound pretty likely that the court would say, no, we do have the authority to go ahead and issue an injunction uh, against the president. You know, I, I think Steve is right on the merits. I think, um, as a matter of constitutional law, the president can be enjoined. But if we're going to decide what the district court's going to do or what the courts are going to do, I don't think anyone but the Supreme Court will... Mm-hmm. Walk back what what is what was said in Mississippi versus Johnson or, and what's been repeated in other uh, U.S. Supreme Court cases. So, you know, in order for what I think Steve uh, is saying to happen, the lower courts would have to rule in favor of the United States and would have to eventually get to the Supreme Court, and then the Supreme Court might um, change its mind on this sort of narrow point in line with the other cases that Steve has cited. But I, I don't think that a district court will do it because I don't think that the district court will feel that uh, it's in a position to say that uh, this old case and other cases that have quoted this case or relied upon it. We've been talking with Professor Stephen Vladek of the University of Texas Law School and Professor Sakrishna Prakash of the University of Virginia School of Law about the lawsuit against President Trump for blocking people from his Twitter account and about the government's response. Steve, part of the government's response was this was his private account before he became president, that it is a private website, and also that this is within his authority to do. But is that contradicted by the fact that his White House officials, including Sean Spicer, have said that this is a part of the White House and that this is something that you can look to as official statements of the White House. You know, June, I think that's the whole question that, you know, if the courts get to the merits in this lawsuit, this is going to come down to. I mean, Cy was talking before the break about the argument that, you know, the president's Twitter feed is not necessarily a public forum. I think that depends to some degree on how he's using it. And we've seen him, as you mentioned at the top of the segment, making uh, announcements on Twitter. He announced that John Kelly was going to be his new chief of staff on Twitter. He announced that he was going to ban service by transgendered individuals in the military on Twitter. And I think it's worth noting, I mean, Congress in 2014, even before, you know, Twitter was a big part of this story, um, actually amended the Presidential Records Act 
to obliterate the distinction between official and unofficial social media accounts, the theory being that it's the substance of the statement that matters, not the platform. So if that's true, if courts look at that for indications of how to treat this, I think it's going to be hard to conclude that when the president speaks on Twitter, even through the at real Donald Trump account, he's not speaking in at least some quasi-official capacity in a manner that implicates the First Amendment. Sai, how much uh, harm are these plaintiffs really suffering? So they can still see Donald Trump's tweets, and they can even reply to them uh, by setting up a, a, another account. Is there really any um, loss of free speech by letting the president uh, block uh, some people? Well, I mean, I think the, the, the plaintiffs are saying that they want to be able to respond to the president as themselves, that they've built up an identity online at, you know, with their real names or with the pseudonyms they're using, and that having to create a different account in order to, to follow the president again puts them at a distinct disadvantage. But you're right. The, you know, a lot of people are saying if you, you know, just sign out of Twitter, you can follow what the president's saying, and so that can't be a problem. And then other people are saying you can post under a different name, and, and so you really aren't being shut out. I mean, it's effectively saying, you know, if, if, the, if at a city council meeting they throw out a person, the person can still come back in wearing some sort of mask and make the exact same comments. And so there, there is obviously a burden being placed on them. I think it will largely turn on the question that Stephen pointed out, which is, is it a public forum to begin with? And I, I, I wonder whether the courts are going to want to go down the road of of saying that it is because, you know, Donald Trump can sort of solve this problem by just by turning off the ability to comment at all on his Twitter account, and then there would no longer be a public forum. Ah, um, but will so he... But will he do that? Likely not, because I think he feeds off whatever positive comments he's getting off of off of Twitter. But I, 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 I think it's I think it's problematic when you start trying to apply the public forum doctrine to Twitter, right? Suppose he banishes half the people from the thing. Suppose he posts more photos of his food on the account, right? Is is he is it a public forum only for the official post, but not for the posts of his dog or his children. It, it, I mean, it's, it's an odd claim that because some of the things are official, the entire account becomes official at that point. Well, Steve, let's talk about the federal judge in Virginia who ruled last month that a local politician had violated the First Amendment rights of a constituent when the politician blocked her from a Facebook page where she discussed public business. And the judge said that the Facebook page operates as a forum for speech under the First Amendment. Might this be even more of a forum? So I think it depends. I think I think size put his finger, you know, right on the right on the the nub of the dispute here, which is, you know, is there a way to split the difference between those aspects of President Trump's Twitter presence that are official, that are part of his official duties, that are communicating official statements from the president as the chief executive of the United States, from those aspects of his Twitter account that really are personal and are private. You know, one possibility here, which I think would never happen, would be for the government to say, listen, we will avow from this point forward that nothing on the at real Donald Trump account constitutes the official policy of the United States. If they said that, I actually think that would make this case a lot easier on a First Amendment uh, uh, basis. But we know that they're never going to say that because the president doesn't want that. And so I think what we have, June, is a First Amendment mess almost entirely of the president's own making because he is so committed 
to using what is typically a personal platform for so much official business. Sai, there's a, another legal theory being used by the plaintiffs that's not focused on on speech so much as the, the, the right to petition uh, the government for redress of grievances. Is that um, ana- analytically separate? Is that another uh, significant quiver in the or arrow in the quiver of the plaintiffs or does that sort of meld right into the first to the to the free speech argument? Yeah, I think it melds right in. I mean, the basic, the public forum doctrine says I should be able to speak in this particular forum, right? Be it the street or be it uh, Twitter. And one response to that is just to say, well, you can speak in another forum, right? You don't have to be, you don't have to speak in this forum. You can speak somewhere else. But that's never a sufficient defense to a claim that I should be allowed to speak in a public forum. And so I think, you know, they're, they're going to, the fact that they can write a letter to the president is no substitute for them being able to write on Twitter if, in fact, his Twitter account is a public forum. Steve, this raises cutting-edge issues about the Constitution and social media. If it goes forward, is it a case the Supreme Court might take up? I think it depends on how it unfolds, June. I mean, I think that there's certainly going to come a point sometime in the near future where the Supreme Court's going to have to sort out, at the very least, the underlying merits question here, which is whether when the president sends a tweet, that tweet has the force of an executive order, that tweet has the force of any other public pronouncement by the president, whether that's going to get to the court in this context or in the context of the now pending challenge to the new transgender policy in the military or something else, I think remains to be seen. But one way or the other, I suspect the president's use of his so-called personal Twitter account is eventually going to force the Supreme Court to draw some kind of line between the public aspect of that account and the personal aspect. And that will be a very interesting Supreme Court argument. I want to thank both of you for being on Bloomberg Law. That's Stephen Vladek. He's a professor at the University of Texas Law School. And Sai Krishna Prakash, professor at the University of Virginia School of Law. Thank you both. That's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law, but we'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m. Wall Street time and hope that you will be as well. Thanks to our producer, David Sutcherman, and our technical director, Mark Siniscalci. You can always find the latest legal news at BloombergLaw.com and BloombergBNA.com, plus a website for the legal community at BigLawBusiness.com. And attorneys, you can find exceptional legal research and business development tools there as well. And don't forget to listen to the latest legal topics in the news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. Coming up next, Bloomberg Markets with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson. I'm June Grosso with Greg Store. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Law. We'll be back with you tomorrow. This is Bloomberg.